This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, th- well thank you, and uh, thanks everyone for being here this afternoon. Um, I'm very excited to welcome you to this event on the humanities um, as a vocation. And so I... You know, I started my career at UCSB in 1995 as a professor in the history department and became dean of humanities and fine arts about three years ago. And one of the really great aspects of my job is that I get to travel around the country and meet with our humanities uh, alumni. And I know we've all heard the old stereotype of humanities alum uh, graduates um, who work in baristas are driving a cab for the rest of their lives. Um, but in my job in meeting our alumni, um, I could definitely tell you um, that is not the case at all. Um, they are highly motivated, very talented, and successful in a really number of interesting and variety of career pathways. And I have to confess, though, that you, know, you can imagine that I'm predisposed to like our arts and humanities alumni, given that I'm uh, the dean. But that I was even surprised um, as I was meeting our um, alumni in different places about how entrepreneurial um, they were. Um, and there are a number of different examples and stories that um, I can give you. Uh, for example, I made a his- history major um, in Chicago who is running a technology startup that is pioneering a new food service that has already changed the way my son uh, eats. My son is a student at, at UC um, Irvine. Um, are in New York City, where I met a number of different English majors who were working on a startup as um, a digital publishing company. Um, our, one of our graduates of our French and Italian program, uh, who lives here in Santa Barbara and who has started her own consulting and public relations uh, firm. And, and with these examples, um, they clearly have, um, are related to um, business, But we can also think about kind of this sense of entrepreneurship in a bigger way of people who are creating change. And so we have lots of alumni who are in what you might think of very traditional professions um, like medicine, law, um, even accounting, but yet who have an entrepreneurial element to their careers. So one example, for example, is a doctor that we're working with and starting a medical humanities program uh, here on campus who has training in philosophy that he uses um, to teach medical ethics to people um, interested in medicine and to also use that training in medical ethics uh, to contribute and to run a nonprofit organization here in town called Doctors um, uh, Without Walls. Um, We have another uh, highly successful alumni in the Bay Area who's been fabulously successful career at a big five accounting firm. Um, But one of the very important passions for her is to encourage other women to have leadership positions, executive positions in the accounting industry. And so she's devoted a great deal of her time in a very entrepreneurial fashion to organizations and support groups to make that happen. Now, you might think that these are kind of like isolated examples that we're kind of cherry picking here, but it's actually, there's a lot of data, data to support that there is a relationship between training in the humanities and a sense of entrepreneurship. Um, 
It's very clear from uh, data from uh, uh, sites like payscale.com that many people who have degrees in the humanities have very uh, well-paying uh, careers, um, highly successful careers, and um, actually um, do better in some sense than people with business majors or biology majors. And what kind of one of the key facts that come out of those studies is that many people with humanities degree also report higher than average job satisfaction. And I think that job satisfaction is related at least in part to that sense of entrepreneurship. And we certainly have done studies here at UCSB with our own alumni through the Career Service Center that shows that a large number of our UCSB humanities alumni are themselves um, entrepreneurs in some fashion. Um, they're self-employed professionals, they're independent consultants, or they are business owners and involved with startup companies. So kind of the question I want to just address very briefly um, as a way of introduction to this event is what accounts for this self-evident, or not self-evident, but evident relationship, at least what we can tell in the data and anecdotally, between the humanities and entrepreneurship. Uh, some of this is obviously skills-based. That the particular skills that you learn in the humanities, things like critical reading, uh, research skills, um, writing skills, are obviously important for a successful entrepreneur. Um, and as somebody who has taught um, uh, history for many years, um, I obviously deeply value those particular skills that we teach in the humanities. But I think it goes deeper than that and that there are certain humanistic values that are also key attributes of entrepreneurs. And those values to me are imagination, empathy, and creativity. Now, if you're a successful entrepreneur, um, I think the really hard part of your job is um, that sense of imagination, of being able to imagine a different future, of having a sense that things can change of being alert to new possibilities and new opportunities. And that sense of entrepreneurial alertness that comes through imagination is often very informed by a sense of empathy, the ability to understand others so you can see these new opportunities, so you can understand what other people want and need that they currently do not have. And of course, once you've identified um, a, a problem, a challenge, um, a, 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 a potential opportunity, then an entrepreneur has to have a sense of creativity to address that problem. And that kind of sense of creativity has to be grounded in the concrete realities and the practical realities that we uh, need. Um, but it can also be um, a, a sense of creativity related to the artistic world, right? Like being able to write, um, or produce visual art, or produce a film that meets this entrepreneurial opportunity. So imagination, empathy, and creativity, these are exactly the attributes of what we teach in the humanities. And so, for example, when you engage deeply with literature of another culture, you are learning this sense of, of empathy, understanding the viewpoints of others. When we seek to understand different um, religious traditions and understand how those religious traditions have changed over time, you're learning a sense of imagination and a sense of creativity. Uh, and when we engage in the understanding and the practice of making art, 
we are um, uh, fueling that creative side to ourselves that's so important for entrepreneurship. And so this brings me back to this panel and why I'm so delighted that we have this event. Because at this event, we are seeing examples of the entrepreneurial humanities in action. And we're doing so in a way that can promote and nurture this sense of humanistic entrepreneurship. All three of these panelists and presenters um, are engaged in the entrepreneurial humanities, whether it's finding out um, new ways of providing financing for uh, uh, small-scale entrepreneurs across the globe, whether it's um, trying to find new ways of engaging broad audiences uh, about sophisticated ideas concerning global religion, or whether it's reinventing the superhero genre that includes a spiritual uh, uh, dimension um, uh, uh, to it. And so I think you'll find all three of these panels um, really fascinating, and all of them in their different ways, showing the connection between entrepreneurship and the humanities. So I'm very excited, and again, I'm very grateful for uh, for you being here and looking forward to a really great event. Thank you very much, Dean Majewski. That was really insightful, talking about imagination, creativity, and empathy. I think we're going to hear those, that theme uh, repeated um, frequently today. I wanted to say before we um, get started that uh, to tell you that there are refreshments, light refreshments in the back of the room behind the divider there if you'd like some coffee or tea. And if you're looking for restrooms, I'm going through the logistics here first, <laughs> housekeeping details. Go out this door and take a left, and, and they're around uh, this other side, front side of the building here. And um, what, the way we're going to proceed is we'll have our first speaker uh, now until roughly 3.15-ish. Um, she's going to speak, and then I'll moderate a Q&A at the end of her presentation. And we'll take a small break and set up uh, for our next two uh, speakers and uh, do the same thing. They'll be in conversation with each other and have some video clips to share, and then we'll open uh, the floor to the audience for comments and questions. When putting this together um, to talk about career paths beyond the blackboard, I thought long and hard about who would be good examples um, to motivate our students to think about how to apply uh, the skills they learn in humanities Uh, to careers that fit their passions. And when I did that research, I I could find no one better than our first speaker uh, of the afternoon. Jessica Jackley uh, came to my attention as somebody who was an early adapter of using the web, the internet, um, to uh, connect people to people. Um, She's a co-founder of a website that's very well known by now is Kiva.org, which uh, facilitates microloans and investment in people um, so that uh, finance, uh, as as, uh, Dean Majewski mentioned, that micro projects could get uh, investments, could get financed around the globe. Uh, And so this allowed people to invest as little as $25, uh, through the internet and know that that money would be put to good use um, and have something of a multiplier effect in uh, another region of the world. Um, Jessica Jackley 
as a co-founder and the chief, mar uh, chief marketing officer of Kiva.org. And um, from that, then, she also went on to co-found ProFounder, which is a similar enterprise that created um, <clears throat> networks on the Internet for small entrepreneurs in um, the United States. And she's also the author of a book called Water, Clay, Brick, Finding Inspiration from Entrepreneurs Who've Made the Most from the Least. Um, Jackley um, has uh, got her MBA from Stanford University, but before that she was an undergraduate in philosophy, poetry, and political science at Bucknell University. So I've asked her here today to talk about uh, her education and her ideas about how her humanities background had really made it possible for her to launch the kind of career that fit her passions. So please join me in welcoming Jessica Jackley. Thank you for the kind introduction. By the way, is this mic adequate then? We're good if I stand out here and speak? Is it on? Yeah, oh, it is. Great, thank you for the thumbs up in the back, good. Thank you, Dean, for the wonderful remarks. I was hoping that you would stop soon because I didn't want you to steal the thunder. You're so right on with those comments. I'm thinking, I'm gonna talk about that. I better think of something new. <laughs> um, that was awesome. Um, I've, it really resonated with me and my experiences. And thank you for having me for pre you know, all the prep calls and all the hard work that you've done to make this happen today. So two, or sorry, three of the four guys pictured with me there were here a minute ago. and. Um, Two of them, the twins, who are six now, this is a year ago, in the past have actually done an opening act for me. I kid you not, they each have like a joke that they tell. It's pretty great. It's kind of cheating, right? Because then you're all warmed up. Like, it's just my kids. <laughs> but usually, is that me doing that? Tell me what I need to not do. I'll just move slowly. Yeah? Okay. Great. I'm getting lots of thumbs up. Anyway, they're not here, but I'll use this slide for something else. So that other guy, the biggest one, Reza, will be speaking later ask him really hard questions. So he's my husband, and he's the alum, and one of the reasons that I was able to be on the radar and be a part of this today. So give him a hard time, give the little two not a hard time, and the other guy's napping. But that's my family. I am first and foremost a mom and a wife and have lots of other fun things to talk about, but they're a big part of my world. So it's fitting to just start with them regardless. Um, I'm gonna begin my own story by actually beginning with someone else's. So. About 13 years ago, I met a gentleman named Patrick. I met him in, uh, in a border town, a border village, really, between Kenya and, Kenya and Uganda. And as, well, I met him during a period of time when I was working with a small nonprofit called Village Enterprise that provides mostly, among other services, mostly $100 grants, not even microloans like I'll talk about, but grants to people who need them, who aren't even on the first rung of the economic ladder, but want to go from sort of survival mode, doing their day-to-day -day activities, often agricultural-based or basic trading, things like that, and craft, different crafts, to actually having a sustainable livelihood. So they receive this $100, and it's sort of the starter infusion of capital to move to the next level. Patrick was one of the people that I met. And my job was to hear his story and sort of have this wonderful, it was a wonderful exercise in gaining a deep empathy for the folks that Village Enterprise served throughout Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. Well, as Patrick described it to me, his story you know, had really begun a few years prior to that day that I had been sitting there talking with him when he had fled the northern area of Uganda because a rebel group had attacked his village. 
he escaped with just his brother and the clothes on their backs, no shoes on their feet, um, very little education, like a handful of years, and they lost the rest of their family, the land where they were living, their home, everything. So this guy like travels on foot for days and days with his little brother behind him, kind of lands in this village where he had distant cousins that were able to take him in. Take him in meaning also living in this like mud structure with them, crammed in, that's true, mud structure, no <laughs> you know, amenities to speak of, but it was something and it was distant family. He wanted to be near any family he could after all the trauma that he had just been through. So after a few weeks, he was able to sort of um, recalibrate a little bit and he decided that he, you know, as he did every day, he decided that he needed to not just survive and support his brother, but he wanted things to be better. So one day he wakes up, tries to figure out his game plan for survival, like doing some kind of work to earn some kind of money to get some kind of food to feed himself. And he told me that he had this sort of epiphany, one of these rare, wonderful, sparkly kind of aha moments. And he realized as he was sitting on the ground with his back leaning up against this mud structure, he, he was sort of just touching the, the dirt um, where he sat, and he sort of realized that there was opportunity right there, right in the ground beneath him. And he started to dig, first with his hands, then with a stick, <laughs> then with a scrap of metal. And he learned that if, if he dug deep enough, uh, he could find clay deposits. And then he learned that if he mixed those chunks of clay with water, the little... Um, it took a lot of practice, but he was able to form and make, make shapes out of that mixture into bricks that looked a little bit like this. Now, those bricks were rough and misshapen, and, you know, I know this is a low-res picture. Apologies. I didn't know I'd be speaking here today, like, 13 years ago, so I didn't take a picture then. Um, stock photo. But and there's not a lot of stock photos of mud bricks, believe it or not. They looked like this-ish, and they were, they were good enough to sell for fractions of a penny each. So that's what he did. He did it again and again and again, day after day, and saved up this little tiny bit of money so that eventually he could do this. He could buy this sort of wooden mold. Now, it might not look like a big deal. Oh, boy. Um, so I'm not sure why this is not playing, but let me see. No? Okay, there's a little video that goes with this, but it's no big deal. Um, basically, this this mold allowed him to up his production, to increase the speed of it, to have these bricks that were evenly shaped and sized, were stronger, more packed down, they didn't crack and crumble as easily, and he was able to sell those for a little bit more. So that's what he did. He used that mold, made a bunch of bricks. Now, his method was basically to just let them dry in the sun, it's free, it's, they're on the equator, <laughs> it works, but he knew that he could sell the bricks for even more if he would, if he, yeah, is there, a, is there anything I can do for this guy? Okay. We'll try that, we'll try that. I feel like I'm not moving very freely, I feel. Um, he knew that if he could learn how to bake the bricks in a kiln, that he could sell them for more. So what does he do? He saves up money, gets a bicycle taxi ride into a nearby village, apprentices with a guy there who teaches him how to stack the bricks, light the fire inside, bake the bricks, sells them for more. So you can see where the story goes. I won't go through every single step, but by the time I met Patrick, he had gone through enough cycles of this and kept at it, saving, improving, growing his business little by little by little, buying a shovel and a trowel and other professional implements, not just the stick or the scrap of metal to dig. He was able to improve his business so much that he hired his brother, he hired a few neighbors, and he was building homes all around his village, including in his own plot of land that he sort of had dug up. <laughs> that were his distant cousin's um, area. And he built houses like this of baked bricks that he had dug from the earth with his own two hands. 
if that's not entrepreneurial, I, I don't know what it is. So here's what I'm going to do, though. I'm going to tell you one other quick story of a woman that I met during that same period of time doing this work for Village Enterprise. I met Patrick's, and I met hundreds of entrepreneurs like him who had used $100 to do, you know, to grow their businesses at some point from daily activities to more. And I met another person named Fatuma about um, 800 miles due south of where I'd met Patrick. She lived outside of Dodoma, Tanzania, different landscape, drier, um, much more challenging in, in a lot of different ways. And she lived in a mud structure that looks like this. There are lots of different styles. And I, I don't know how many have spent time in places like this, but you might think when you step inside a structure like this that it's cozy and well lit. And sometimes, once in a while, you get that. But usually, um, it's much more stark and um, bare. And that's what Fatuma's home was like. So I walk up. I, I, I'm there to meet her, to learn about her business. She had so much energy. She's kind of a firecracker. Uh, and she, she welcomes me in. We go into a room, a one-room structure that looks like this. There's a mattress on one side, just on the ground. And there's two, like, rickety folding chairs that I think she had built by hand out of some scraps of wood. It's very impressive, actually. So I gingerly sit down, and I start to ask her about her business, which was selling charcoal. Long story short, she shows me, I mean, the woman was incredible. She had under her mattress, she had these little blue books. Does anyone get, like, a stress reaction? I don't know if you use blue books still today, but I certainly did, right? For essays and pop quizzes and things like that in middle school and high school. So she had, like, these blue books. God knows where she got them. And with this, like, stub of a piece of charcoal, she had kept records of, of her business over the months and years uh, leading up to that moment. And it was, I, I looked at the numbers, I, I grilled her on what I was seeing, and it, it should have been this rags-to-riches story. Like, she had, her business had grown a lot, but looking around, it was bare. She had children running around. There were very, you know, um, their clothes were scraps and sort of thread, threadbare things. Um, she was certainly not the picture of health. Her shoes were falling off her feet. She had lost most of her teeth. She was gaunt. Uh, I was very confused because she should have been doing much better, at least, if not well, according to how her business's business had been growing. Now, there's a bunch of caveats. We could, we could go on a whole different path today and just talk about um, <laughs> all, all the caveats that exist, like, you know, she had done a lot of what she could do, given her view of the world, given her view of what she thought was possible for the future. She, she wasn't able, you know, completely to imagine more for herself and her family. But when I pushed her on where the money was and what had been going on and why things weren't better in terms of a change of her standard of living, she looks around. She was kind of dodging the question, and it was strange. So she looks around, and like no, anyone else was in this tiny space, and then she tiptoes over to the mattress and pounds the floor, and she says... The extra money is in the World Bank. And she starts cracking up. Now, first of all, like, when you're doing poverty alleviation, like, impact surveys, things like that, you don't get a lot of joke in around. Like, there's not a lot of humor to be found there, although it would be interesting to credit and incorporate that. Maybe there's something there. I don't know. But she, she, she literally buried the money in her World Bank. She thought this was so f I think it's funny, too. She buried the money in the ground, okay? So... Again, lots more to say about Fatuma. You know, maybe she was saving this for some gigantic rainy day. Um, it gave her some sense of security that in and of itself must have been valuable to her. But at the end of the day, I met Patrick's, I met Fatuma's, and a bunch of people in between. And since that time, yes, I was fascinated by the actual work of doing microenterprise development. But I, I got obsessed with this question of... Why do some people dig and unearth greatness, unearth opportunity, unearth potential, right? And some people dig to bear, literally bury their treasures, literally to stop that potential from growing. 
why are there some people that flourish when given opportunities and access to capital and things like that, and other people stay steady and don't want to kind of rock the boat and, and do more? And while, you know, I feel like I'm always operating in uh, sort of working definitions of things, I'm always trying to incorporate what I'm learning, I think it was because of an entrepreneurial mindset that Patrick had that so many other entrepreneurs that I met like him had as well, and it was about this. Pursuing an opportunity without regard to resources currently controlled. Now, it might sound kind of stodgy. It is like an, an academic definition. I feel like anybody in this room may have a definition that's different than this, that they really like, that describes uh, entrepreneurship or how they think about entrepreneurship to them. Um, this is Howard Stevenson, a Harvard Business School professor's definition, and I love it. I'm kind of obsessed with it. It's, there's two parts here. So there's the pursuit, right, running towards something come hell or high water, moving towards this idea that you have about how the future can be, this, this thing that you've imagined, this invisible picture of what you want to make happen in the world without regard to resources currently controlled. And I think, we'll talk more about this later, without regard to a lot of other things that we often let hold us back in whatever field we're pursuing and whatever we're doing day to day. Now, this also to me is revolutionary because it disassociates what we have from what we can go do and be in the world, right? It, it breaks that apart. I think a lot of the messages that I got growing up, I, had, I realized this a little bit retroactively, told me that the more you have, once you have access to particular opportunities or resources, then you can go do and be more. Again and again, despite the fact that I'm kind of obsessed and a lot of my career has been about providing those things, I've seen the most entrepreneurial people in the world blow through all of that and just go do the thing they need to do no matter what, whether they have those things or not. So as I've reflected a lot over the years on why this feels so revolutionary to me and this, this disassociation seems so striking, it's because one of, the, one of the images and one of the stories that I heard a ton growing up, unfortunately, was of that sort of, um, hey, was, it was about nonprofits, well-intentioned organizations, whether through my church groups or through NGOs or nonprofits, that were telling me again and again and again, the story of the poor is one of sadness and suffering and desperation and only bad stuff, and nothing will ever change for them unless you swoop in as a sort of savior to them, as a would-be donor, right? God bless Sally Struthers. I hear now it's like Christine Aguilera. Maybe there is even a new person that is the person like this. But I remember watching these things digging through the couch cushions, finding the chains. You know, I, I called these numbers. My parents were like, what are you doing? I'd sign us up for stuff as a kid all the time. Um, but this message of, hey, things are bad out there, <laughs> but you can help if you do this one thing. For me, those stories did exactly what some, again, I, I imagine well-intentioned person long ago decided uh, was the best way to get me to participate and to give. They conjured in me all these emotions, mostly really bad stuff like panic and guilt, if not shame, at my own relative middle-class wealth. Uh, I had to do something to make myself feel better, right? So I would often call and make myself temporarily feel better by throwing you know, my, my bit, tiny bits of money at the problem. I was always in that low net worth donor category, um, which they don't call. I don't know what they call it, actually. Sometimes I, I'm, I'll just keep going. Um, sometimes I uh, would try to, instead of 
operating by feel and responding because of those emotions, I'd try to intellectualize it because sometimes that was the pitch, right? Hey, for the cost of a cup of coffee, you could change a kid's life. You can save somebody. The language was strong. And I don't know if you saw me clutching my coffee, but I love it. And I remember thinking, well, gosh darn it, what's enough? Do I have to give up coffee and give the money I would have spent on it? Am I allowed to drink the coffee, but I should give as much? Or should I be giving more? I tried to make it an intellectual problem to solve, not just a response to emotions that come up. Spoiler alert, that doesn't really work. Um, and I get a lot of really smart students at USC where I teach or elsewhere when I speak um, who come up to me and want to know the, objectively, the objective right answer, like what is the thing I should go do to be of most use in the world? And how much of that thing should I do so that it's enough? I don't think there's an answer to be found there. But I tried, and I see many others doing so. Sadly, you know, this, let's, let's generalize this as this is me and my angst during like childhood up through teenage years. So unfortunately, a lot of this, the, the, the cycle um, of my interactions with poverty and the poor was really this response, as I said, to make myself feel a little bit better temporarily. And I started to think I knew the story. I started to think anytime there was a brochure, an infomercial, or some tale to be told to me about poverty and the poor that I already knew it, it was going to be sad, it was going to make me feel like crap, so I'm just going to get it over with and preemptively give and then go on with the rest of my life so I can feel better until the next story comes along. So what that did for me was shut off um, a lot of my heart in the process. Uh, I began to build up this barrier, invisible, between myself and people that I truly deeply longed to serve and to be useful to. I wanted to help. I wanted to be a helper in the world. That's all I knew. Um, so I felt bad. I threw my change in the jar, <laughs> and I went on with my day. But it, unfortunately, it didn't ever work for too long. Now, then I went to undergrad, okay? And I studied the opposite, what I thought was the opposite of business stuff. As a confession, um, I, I was a hater. Like, I thought, I want to go be a helper. I looked around. I thought the people that were helping in the world were all the nonprofit people, to be technical. And I wanted to be on their team. And I thought, well, not, that's nonprofits. So the profit people are the bad guys. They're the good guys. I'm going to ignore them. I'm going to stay away from them. And entrepreneurs, I thought, were like the gang leaders, like the worst. They were starting businesses, so they were really bad. So I wanted to be on the good guys' teams. Um, and so I gave myself permission at some point, and my parents did. I had a lot of support to just go study what I loved and what I was passionate about. So <laughs> forget business. I didn't take a management course until my first day at Stanford for my MBA. Um, but it was perfect. I studied philosophy, poetry, political science. And what, I, what I've again and again come back to as I think about the things I got to study, among a million other things, they gave me um, skills and this perspective and the ability to do things that I think have been useful in every area of my life. But in particular, I think my philosophy studies helped me peel back my assumptions, really get at the right questions to ask, the core of an issue, the core of an idea, and to understand what I could really know and be sure of and why, and to really go through these very deep um, quests and, and thought processes within my own mind to figure out what I really knew and what I didn't. And what I, what I, when I found those parts of what I knew, I was able to even go deeper by asking questions around those things. Poetry, um, you can tell I am caffeinated and also I talk quickly regardless. I've always gotten feedback on that. I'm sorry 
in advance or not so much in advance. Poetry helped me to slow down, take a breath, and look a little closer. And I loved seeing words on a page with a bunch of white space and just hone on in and, and just squeeze out as much meaning as I could out of those beautiful poems that I, that I got to study. And in political science, gosh, I was curious as to why the heck the world was broken in certain ways and who the heck was in charge. I wanted to understand power structures so that I could go be in charge and fix stuff. <laughs> um, I wanted to know who made the rules. And I thought political science was the way to understand more of that. So we'll come back to these things, but jump ahead. I graduate without a plan, and I'll just really share, you know, this is not prescriptive, this is descriptive, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So. I graduated without a plan. I didn't know what to do with my humanities studies. So I was in love with a boy in California. So I just moved there and didn't have a job or anything. My parents were like, what are you doing? But I moved there um, and I begged my way into a, a temporary administrative job at, drumroll, the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Now, I, I was afraid for my soul working in this place, so much so, I'm not kidding, I, I looked at my life as like, well, I have to balance this out. I, I had like a like carbon credit. I had to, I had to, I was going to be like in the wolf's den, and lion's den, so I had to make sure I was around like other things and other work that was going to be good. Anyway, um, so I, I volunteered. I lived in this home as a teen, a, a home for teen moms as the house mom. So like by day, I would go to my regular job. And then by night, I would go home and help these teen moms and their kids and in the morning drop them off at daycare and school and like make five stops and then go to my real job again. Turns out, though, that I just so happened to land not just in a wonderful academic institution at Stanford, and in the business school in particular, but in this research center called the Center for Social Innovation, where every day people were walking through those doors trying to use business skills and business thinking and entrepreneurial ideas as well to solve social problems, all the stuff that I cared about. So I was shocked um, that there were other people in business, that there were people in business that had anything to do with what I wanted to do. So I very carefully and suspiciously stuck around there for a while, and one day I heard this guy speak, Dr. Muhammad Yunus. He spoke there last minute, and he was kind of swinging through campus, and there was an email blast that went out at like four. He spoke kind of right after work for me um, in this classroom that seated 50, maybe about this size. And I sat there in the fall of 2003, three years before he and his Grameen Bank would win the Nobel Prize for their pioneering work in modern, modern microfinance. I sat in the back so I could leave early if I didn't like it. I was very skeptical because this guy had been advertised on the email blast as a banker to the poor, and I thought, that's so sketchy. Like, why do the poor need a banker? Who is this guy? So I was very suspicious. But I, it was one of those aha moments for me that evening, because first he talked about microfinance. And if this is a new term for anybody sitting in the room, think financial products and services for the entrepreneurial poor. One of the biggest components or one of the most well-known products and slash services is uh, microcredit, microloans, so these tiny loans for people starting or running small businesses, often micro businesses. So he talked about microfinance. Wow, didn't know about that before. It seemed kind of magical, maybe not a silver bullet, but a really effective way to very efficiently provide capital right to the people that needed it most for them to work themselves out of poverty, right, to bootstrap it, these wonderful American values that we have. So wow, microfinance, one. Two, wow, here was this guy who was so accessible, and again, years later would win these, win among many other prizes that he's won, but the Nobel Peace Prize, 
Here he was sitting there talking about his gigantic organization, and he explained how he started in the most humble way. He started with empathy. He started by leaving the halls of academia for an afternoon and going to this village where he spoke with a group of women who wove baskets. He asked them directly why they were poor. He, he sort of tabled for a minute all the economic theories that he had about the world and just talked to them. Why, what's your life like? What are your days like? Why are you stuck in this cycle of poverty? And they explained to him, of course, how he, they, and I'm paraphrasing and going quickly because we have a lot to talk about, they woke up every day with nothing. They borrowed money from a local moneylender who would charge them 300, 3,000%, and I'm not misspeaking, the caffeine is working, that's real. Crazy interest rates that are just in, unheard of, but they had no other option. Nobody else saw them or knew them or has, had, was giving any kind of opportunity or resource to them. So they'd borrow a few dollars, go buy materials to weave baskets, make a beautiful product, sell it at a profit, but owe everything, if not a lot more, back to the money lenders, wake up again the next day, deeper in debt, and do, the next, do that same thing. So he, more or less, as the story goes, you know, reaches into his pocket, lends the whole village like $24, does not charge them 3,000% interest, and the rest is to me, kind of magical microfinance history. That was the beginning of the Grameen Bank, and so many other organizations have followed his lead. So he actually loaned money to people who every traditional financial institution would never pay attention to. So wow, microfinance. Wow, his great work started by listening really carefully and closely to people that he wanted to serve. And maybe naively so, I thought, I, I could be a good listener. I don't know what exactly to put on my resume, but I can do that. And I, I, I knew I could be good at that despite how much I'm talking right now, uh, I can listen to. Third, and maybe most important, he talked about the poor for like an hour, and I didn't feel awful about myself at the end of it. He had no agenda, and he wasn't talking about people whose stories were only about sadness and suffering and desperation and hopelessness. He spoke of people who were smart and strong and hardworking, maybe not educated, maybe not, you know, not they didn't have experience to speak of that would show that they you know, had traditional jobs of any kind, but they were smart, hardworking people doing everything right. They just needed access to this bit of capital. Might sound small. It was so paradigm shifting for me, so game changing. By the way, paradigm, Thomas Kuhn, theory of scientific revolutions, structure of scientific revolutions, philosophy. I read him in philosophy in my science, philosophy of science class. I've written about that book and him in the Stanford Social Innovation Review that's like through the business school. So philosophy, just saying. Um, he, coined the, he coined the term paradigm. Did I say that? He coined that term. So anyway, this was so game-changing for me to hear about the poor, not feel like that barrier was up, but just kind of sneakily, suddenly, uh, hear a different side of the story. I, I, all the baggage that I had, all those negative emotions, weren't there. And so I was so psyched about this. I quit my job. Um, I learned in business school I'm very risk-tolerant. I didn't know that. But apparently, yeah, I quit my job. <laughs> Again, much to my parents' dismay, and in the spring of 04, I was begging my way into an unpaid internship um, with the Village Enterprise to figure out how to understand the lives of the poor, the entrepreneurial poor, receiving small bits of money to do more, and having the time of my life. It was one of my most favorite things I've ever gotten to do. Um, I had no, nothing to my name, and was I had no home. I was tromping around Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania, a different mud hut every few days, but it was the greatest. While I was there, indeed, I heard a different story of the entrepreneurial poor. And it was a story that wasn't the same old, same old that I'd heard growing up from, again, those well-intentioned nonprofits. I met people who were proud of themselves, proud of their work, and actually even enjoyed what they did. I met people who were creative and who were so entrepreneurial and artistic 
and doing beautiful things. I met people who had success stories already. Perhaps they had started with a needle and thread under the shade of a tree, and now they had capital equipment in an office and a bunch of customers. The $100, by the way, he, he bought the sewing machine. Kind of awesome. Um, I met people just in scenes of abundance, right? I met people, in, and I encountered them in a different scene that I had seen again and again and again and again by groups that wanted me to feel one kind of thing to act. But I felt a different kind of thing. <laughs> I was overwhelmed by generosity. I never got asked for things. In fact, I got handed a bunch of things, the turkey, <laughs> everything. Um, and so I started to ask some very simple what-if questions. And I want to hone in on this because I think I would have never thought that I would ever be speaking about entrepreneurship. But I think it gets over-glorified and made into something uh, pretty fancy and bigger than it needs to be. And it makes me sad when I meet people who think that it's not something they could go do, like be entrepreneurial or start a project or an initiative or something within their own job, um, within a, you know, being an entrepreneur. Here's how the very beginning of Kiva was. I thought to myself, huh, what if the other side of the story was told more than the sad side? What if this entrepreneurial side, this hardworking and yet socioeconomically disadvantaged person, what if we told that side of the story? What if we put it online? What if instead of when people didn't feel bad, they'd feel inspired, we asked them to engage differently? Donations are great. It's fine. It solves a lot of problems. But they can perpetuate, in certain circumstances, this weird relationship. What if we let people lend money? Because the only thing that got brought up between me and these individuals that I met with through that one time of work 13 years back was this desire to access a loan not be given anything, but to access a loan that they could pay back to have autonomy and ownership over their own work. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if you told the entrepreneurial side of the story, which is also truth, what if you asked people to lend money at zero, in zero interest? They didn't have to make anything back, but just a charitable loan that they'd get back after the person used it. So these basic what-if questions <laughs> led to the creation of Kiva. I spell that out, by the way, because it's weird what time does especially if you start a successful thing, and I've started unsuccessful things and successful things. I'll tell you about the unsuccessful ones too. But over time, the beginnings get over-glorified themselves, and the story gets blurry. And in business school, business school case studies and other books and things that have been written about Kiva, it's, you know, Jessica then dreamed up the world's first crowdfunding platform, blah, blah, blah. And they, I, it, was a ba it was some very basic questions that we wanted to test out in a very simple, small way. Not, I didn't even use the word crowdfunding until like five years later. It wasn't like a thing yet, really. So the beginnings were humble, and I'm very proud of that. Um, they were small and scrappy. So what we did, we being myself and my co-founder, Matt, we put, took some pictures of friends that we met. <laughs> this person came later, but um, in Uganda at the time, there were seven entrepreneurs we wanted to feature on a little website that we had set up at kiva.org. We put their stories, put their loan needs, and then we spammed our friends and family and said, hey, guys, um, here are seven new friends in Uganda. I've met them all. They need about $3,000 total. Would you consider lending money? We think they'll pay you back. Don't know for sure. We also think this is legal, but like we're waiting for a callback from the SEC, so hopefully it is. Um, what do you say? Again, risk tolerance is helpful. Um, overnight, our friends and family, I mean, we were so low tech, my grandma handed me a 20. Not kidding. We did not have online payment processing, nothing. It was just some pictures of our friends. And then people gave us cash. 
We sent the money over to Uganda, waited six months, they were paid, and we thought it was magic. We took the word beta off of the site, launched for real, and spammed more friends and family, and that was the beginning of Kiva. That first year, officially, fall of 05 to fall of 06, somehow Kiva facilitated not just that $3,000 pilot loan, but 500,000 in loans. The next year it was up to 15 million, the next year 100. Um, I'm sorry, the next year 40, the next year 100. This year, Kiva crossed a billion dollars in loans in these $25 bits, 0% interest, from everyday people, not just in the US, all over the world, to other everyday people all over the world who happen to need access to some capital. So Kiva's grown and changed. I have some screenshots. This is not a commercial for Kiva. This is simply, here's one thing I've gotten to be a part of, and then I want to reflect as we wrap up on lessons learned from this particular endeavor. By the way, look carefully. Who's the lender? Who's the borrower? Don't jump. Two conclusions. Um, yeah, it's fun. And then there's another video, but I'm glad the video's not working because then we can plow through. So, okay. I told you that I'm obsessed with this, right? Um, <laughs> I think great entrepreneurs and great organizations have in common the ability to move forward despite the snapshot of what they seem to have or have control over, et cetera, at any given moment. They keep going. They don't let those things hold them back. And I also don't presume to know things that you all don't. You're all living your lives and making conclusions, and that's great. What I'm going to do is remind all of us of things that you probably have thought yourselves before, so this might not be you know, amazing new things, but they're truths that I know, at least for me, I need to revisit again and again and again to center myself and to live my days in a way that works and makes sense and where I feel like I can actually get good things done in the world and not get off course. So I told you that Philosophy, for example, helped me to learn to ask the right questions. I think part of how this has applied to my work and my life has been about um, coming back to knowing the core of who I am as a person, but also who I am, you know, who, who a company is that I'm a part of or that I've started, knowing who I am and being very careful to know just as clearly who I'm not. So I'm going to tell you one quick story about this. So if entrepreneurship is about the pursuit, you know, we have to be so careful to pursue that thing and not other objectively good things that will come up along the way. So um, uh, a year, gosh, two years into Kiva, we had just crossed the $10 million mark. And um, <laughs> we get this phone call. Now picture it. Our office is like the size of maybe four of these tables. And it's in this crumbling brick building, bars on the windows in the Mission District of San Francisco, um, which is probably now worth millions of dollars. But uh, that's another story. And so we're there, kind of hunkered down. It's a startup. There's like seven of us. Everyone does everything. Phone rings. I answer it, thinking it's probably my mom again, because like half the phone calls were are my mom. <laughs> She's very supportive. And we answer. I answer. Um, and it's this guy who says, hey, I mean, I've never met him, so I should be nice. I don't know if he does this, but he seemed like that guy. Like, it seems like if he'd meet me at a, like, he's, if, he, if he met me at a conference or something, he'd be like, nice to meet you. Yeah, hey, okay, great. And would look over my shoulder for someone cooler to talk to. He just seemed like this guy. Anyway, God, I'm sure he's fine. But he sounded like that guy. So I pick up the phone, and he's like, hey, you know, love what you guys are doing at Kiva. I'm blah, blah, blah from blah, blah, blah company, which will remain anonymous. And we just... Um, <laughs> we just started this amazing corporate social responsibility initiative. We have $10 million, and we want to put it into Kiva. What do you say? And we had been getting a lot of weird calls because we had just been on Oprah, and the site had crashed, and we had this splash page that was like, we can't take your money because we don't have servers that can support this, but like, come back soon or donate money to us. 
Anyway, so a lot of weird calls were coming in, but this in particular, I mean, we had only in our whole lives, in our whole existence, facilitated $10 million. Here was another $10 million he wanted to put into Kiva, as he said. So I took a breath and said, okay, what do you mean? Because our mission, who we are, who Kiva is, is um, we connect people. That's kind of the what, right? We connect people through lending for poverty alleviation. That's what we do. It's the what and the how and the why. Connect people through lending, poverty alleviation. Um, we're not just like a big fund that you throw money into that raises money for micro, this microfinance. I'm sure that's a great thing, too, but we don't do that. Um, we don't, um, you know, there's lots of other things we could be, but that's what we are. We're about connecting human beings. So what do you want to do with this $10 million? Do you want to divide it up into $25 and $50 and $100 bits and give it out as gift certificates to, like, all your employees and all your clients and let them come to the site and lend? Because that's what we do. It has to have humans behind it. We can't just take your money and dump it into some system and give it back. Again, for the sake of time, I'll be fast. I also begged him to pay our rent for, like, ever, but he didn't want to do that. I thought that was another good use of the funds. Anyway, he said, no, 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 I just want to put it in and get it back. You can let me know when it's all cycled through. Like he wanted to do the thing that would have actually taken opportunities away from human beings who were crashing the site at the time, lining up to put their hard-earned 25 or $50 in and have this experience of being connected to a different person on the other side of the planet maybe than they would have ever been connected to otherwise. So on that same phone call, because I had clarity, we had clarity as an organization about who we were and who we weren't. I said, no, thank you. Here's a few other suggestions. Have a good day. And when phones were shaped like this, not this, I hung up the phone. And that was that. I was able to say sometimes yes and a lot more times no at the beginning of Kiva's existence and over the years and in my own life to different objectively good opportunities. You know, $10 million is objectively good uh, as they came in because I, I felt like I have learned to ask the right questions about, will this allow me to keep being who I have decided I want to be in the world or will it take me off course? And if you can get good at that, I think it feels very freeing and easy to say yes or no, even when something comes in that might seem, you might, you might appear crazy to all the people around you. You might get a job offer that's a really good job offer one day that nobody else will understand why you might not take, but maybe it's because it's not, it's not going to make you continue to be the version of yourself you want to be in the world or your best self the way you've decided. So that's one thing. Know who you are, know who you're not. Ask, really carefully ask questions about the opportunities that come your way. Second, slow down and look a little more closely. Um, for me, this is all about empathy, I'm telling you. We didn't plan this. But I think again and again and again, the things I'm proud of in my life and the things that have worked have been built on a deep understanding of who I've wanted to serve. And usually, they're built on something that at first um, really intimidated me or made me feel kind of dumb. So I said, listen until it hurts. Uh, when I was first in East Africa, I remember me with the turkey like lot, many years ago. Had you given me a magic wand and said, Jessica, go fix the world, I would have been like, give me that. I know exactly what to do. Poof, poof, poof. And I would have been so confident, and I would have messed a lot of things up. Bless you. Because I thought, I'm the person that knows how to fix stuff. What I've learned again and again, sometimes in very humbling ways, is that the very best thing I can do is check my assumptions frequently and connect with the person who I'm trying to create something of value for and make sure that I'm doing it well and doing it right. One of the women that I met with during that time, 13, 14 years back, was um, <laughs> a woman who basically, as I asked her how her business had grown over time and what she had done first with some of the profits, she was like, well, um, the first thing I did, in Swahili, of course, she's like, the first thing I, get, I did was uh, buy sugar for my tea. I was judgy. 
inside. I didn't say anything, but I was like, what? You're living in a hut. You need food. You need, you know, send your daughters to school. You need this, you need this. I thought that I knew at that point, like a few weeks into my work, that I was the expert and that she should have done something different to improve her life. But I knew enough at least to say, okay, tell me more. It was an insight that was humbling to me, right? It was something that she put out there that surprised me and threw me off because I thought I knew what was up. So she said, well, you know, when I am able to have sugar for my tea, I'm able to offer it to my guests as well. And tea is a very big part of East African culture. So I'm able to have people for the first time in years into my home and offer them the experience of having tea. You kind of can't do it unless you have the tea, the cups, the milk, and the sugar and the chapati or whatever else you want to serve with it. Um, so she had finally been able to do that again. That strengthened her relationships. It built, it, her confidence grew. She started to not just have her small business activities in her village, but in other trading centers and beyond. It literally affected her bottom line and allowed her to do better and better at her business and then get to a lot of the other things that, yeah, I really wished that she had done first at that time. So I think of that moment a lot because as much as I think the more time that passes, the more confident we can become in how much we know about what works and what doesn't in the world and whatever we're trying to do or fix or build. And for me, checking that frequently, coming back to questioning certain assumptions and certainly to connecting as much as I can with the person I want to serve has always been very, very helpful. Okay, last but not least, remember political science? I really wanted to know who was in charge and who made the rules. And I think I've learned through Kiva and lots of other stuff, there are very few actual real rules out there. I mean, yeah, legally, fine. We can have the talk about legal things and Kiva and everything else I've gotten to be part of. Um, but at the end of the day, and I'm going to skip ahead so we can just get to questions. At the end of the day, um, there will be questions that you can ask that nobody's ever asked or answered before. There will be insights that you might see that nobody... You might see something new and true today that either wasn't possible yesterday or that maybe was, but nobody noticed and nobody thought to pursue. So the rules may not apply to the path that you have. What this has done for me, let me get to a good place here. What this has done for me has allowed me to just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's practice, it's work, and it's scary, but I think defining for myself the rules of what I want to go get done, how I want to get it done, and what success looks like to me. Um, you were talking about, yeah, there are a lot of humanities folks who are making great money. That's, I'm happy that I can contribute to my mortgage now and have three kids that are expensive, but that's never been the thing that has been most important to me. I've decided to get paid in other currencies, like autonomy, like working with people I love, not really, not really compromising on that, like having adventures. I've gotten paid a lot for a lot of different things and travel and adventures around the world and a plane ticket somewhere I've never been. It's good enough for me oftentimes. Um, I've been able to count the things that really matter to me. And not just on that side of getting rewarded, but in the pursuit of what I want to make in the world. There may be things that you want to go do, again, that other people don't see, other people don't get or believe in, but you might be the person whose job it is in that moment to go pursue them. And you may not get validation from others. I think great entrepreneurs, do not, they don't just disregard this resources 
elements. Like they start something, even if they didn't get funding. <laughs> and again, I'm, I'm a VC, like I, I do funding, that's what I do. But I see people do it come hell or high water. They, no matter what they have or don't have, they keep moving forward. So I think if I may interpret this on my own, I hope Howard Stevenson, who made this definition, is fine with it. But I think great entrepreneurs move forward regardless of what they have, regardless of where they stand and what title they might hold, or who or what they control, and even regardless of their past. You know. There was a quote that a 2007, way back, uh, blog wrote about um, me <laughs> that was sort of a backhanded compliment that I find funny to share. So Guy Kawasaki, a well-known tech blogger and evangelist, wrote, and I quote, what would the ideal background be for the founder of Kiva? Investment banker from Goldman Sachs? Vice president of the World Bank? VP of the Peace Corps? Of the Rockefeller Foundation? How about a partner at McKinsey? <laughs> how about a temporary administrative assistant at the Stanford Business School? Because that's how I started my quest. And I was kind of like, thanks. But what I love about that um, is that, yeah, I, I, love, I love the things I've gotten to explore and study and learn in my life. And I regret nothing. I'm, I'm so grateful that I have this path that gives me insights and ideas from, I think, a wider um, spectrum and a wider range than a lot of other folks that I've encountered in the business world who were very um, kind of narrow in what they've pursued over the years. I've jumped around a, bu a bunch. And here's the thing, to close, um, whether those voices are on the outside and you, you worry or you have this idea that somebody might be looking in on your life or on this thing that you want to go do, small or big, whether you're worried about them thinking these things about you, all of these I've been told, <laughs> um, or their voices inside yourself, inside your own head, remember that you don't have to listen to those. These are not... these other people's opinions and even that little voice in yourself that might have doubt sometimes does not need to determine your fate. So wherever you can, um, step back and question what the real story is, not just of somebody else, but of yourself. What your reaction needs to be to a problem you see in the world, what your own path might possibly be. And most importantly, <laughs> remember that even when it feels like you don't have the thing you need, you can step back and think a little bit differently about that, and maybe you have exactly what you need to move ahead like Patrick did. Thank you. Let's talk. That was it. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.